So I'm recording. So this is Office Hours, a place where students in an online program can have an experience of sitting in a professor's office. Um, and today, along with Ryan, I have Lisa Diamond, who I am just beyond excited to have, um, because I think you probably have the most interesting uh, research agenda, like, of all time. <laughs> I don't, don't know if it can ever really get boring. Like my, you know, all other people of that. <laughs> um, and I first came in contact with your work on, on YouTube after I was um, trying to get my hands on a book called A Billion Wicked Thoughts. And I'm sure you're well aware of that, of that book. Heard of it. I've not read it, but I have heard of it. Um, and also, you were also cited in a wonderful book by a lady named Emily Nagoski, um, Come As You Are, which was just probably the best sex therapy book I've, I've ever read in my entire life. Um, so can you give us a brief overview of like your research agenda, um, and then we'll dive in with some, with some more questions. Sure. So when I started out my research career, I really thought of myself as someone who was studying um, just basic uh, sort of sexual identity development in young women. And the reason that I was very interested in that is because when I, when I started doing research and I was interested in women's sexual identity development, I found that most of the research out there was actually on men. Uh, you know, this was in the early 90s, and most folks were doing their research by going and lesbian youth groups and things like that and women were not as well represented in those places as men and I quickly found that that there just wasn't a lot known about young know, women's sexual identity development so I was like you know I, I you know I'm a very ardent feminist so I was like oh my god like women's voices are missing from this so that's what I set out to do and my very first research project was just basically interviewing young women, women between the ages of 16 and 23, that, and this was before the internet, right? So I was just literally driving to places where they were living in like a car, trying to find people and just being like, I'm just trying to, I had no money, I had no funding, nothing. Um, just like, do, can I can I interview you about your own relationships and your own history of sexual questioning, blah, 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 blah. And, and I followed those women over time. And it was really following them over time that ended up being so revelatory. Because what I found was that there was a lot of fluctuation in the way women identified uh, their sexual identity, you know, lesbian or bisexual or unlabeled. And a lot of that change had to do with who they happened to be involved with. If they had fallen in love with someone unexpected. And, and so I started to really think about this, this concept of sexual fluidity, this, this capacity of individuals to experience really unexpected changes in their sexual experience and attraction and behavior and, and identification based on these contextual factors, who they were around, who they were involved with, 
and that really sexual identity was really tightly linked in with who people were involved with, with their closest relationships. And it was interesting to me because thinking that I was a sexuality researcher, and then I really realized that in order to understand sexuality, you really need to understand intimate relationships. So I became a relationship researcher. And over the years, the thing that's been so sort of freaky to me is that those fields, which seem like they should be kind of related, and every year I would go to like the big sexuality conference, and I wouldn't see any of my colleagues who were relationship researchers. And then I would go to the big relationships conferences, and I wouldn't see any of my colleagues who were sexuality researchers. And I was like, what is wrong with this? Like, there's something wrong here that it's so obvious that sexuality and romantic relationships, they're not the same thing, but they kind of intersect in most people's lives. And me that those academic fields and, the, and, and even the clinical practice that sex therapists don't seem to be talking to relationship therapists and relationship therapists don't talk to sex therapists. So I sort of stumbled across over the course of my career this this kind of weirdness that there's been a, a weird split between these fields that I think is not very helpful to anyone. And part of what I've tried to do in my work is to them closer together. It's not just an issue for LGBT individuals, even though it's been my focus. I think it's an issue for the whole field that we are not very good at integrating sexuality into our study of intimate relationships and integrating intimate relationships into our study of sexuality. Yeah, I think that that is um, it's so true and um I don't see it as something that's necessarily getting better. I mean, I'm a big fan of Sue Johnson, but when I read her research on sexuality, I come away thinking, this is kind of weak. And she's probably the top dog in the field, at least in my opinion, in terms of, like, the the therapy side of it, you know? Yeah. Um, so, and I think the thing that comes up, comes up for me as you're talking about this is, what do you mean by um, close relationships, right? Are you, do you mean like uh, oh. the romantic relationships? Do you mean like the family relationships? Do you mean peer relationships? What do you... Okay, that's like the $6 million question. I'm so glad you asked that because one of the things that I really appreciate is that um, our, these fields and academic research makes a distinction between... Uh, emotionally primary relationships that that involve sexual activity and emotionally primary relationships that don't and that can be a relatively arbitrary distinction um, one of the things that sort of made me more aware of this when I was a you know a young graduate student in the 90s was that some of the women that I was interviewing in my study sort of discovered their capacity for same-sex attractions by unexpectedly falling in love with someone that they were not initially sexually attracted to. Sometimes it was a heterosexual woman falling in love with a, with a same-sex friend. 
Sometimes it was a lesbian woman falling in love with an opposite sex friend. And it raised this question of what is the difference between a friendship and a romantic relationship? Um, because some of the, the sort of relationship cues that these women were tending to were things like, why is it that this is the first person I want to call when anything important happens to me? Why, like, what is it that makes this the person that I feel safest with uh, than anyone else? And, and those are, are similar to familial ties. And that's what actually led me uh, into attachment theory and attachment research. I didn't start out very interested in attachment. And as I started doing research, I was like, wow, I think I need to understand the difference between kind of emotionally primary bonds and other bonds. And luckily, when I was in graduate school, um, Cindy Hazan, who's a really, you know, one of the preeminent people studying attachment, adult attachment, was there. And I realized that really the distinction that we're talking about, the distinction that's most relevant to, to people's lives, is the distinction between attachment relationships relationships whose primary function in your life is security and comfort and that sort of the deepest sense of validation and then relationships that are affiliative they're they're friendships they're fun they're stimulating but they're not the person that you call at three in the morning but that attachment relationships although in adulthood we expect to have those relationships with either family members they don't need to be sexual partners. Plenty of people's uh, primary attachment bonds as adults are not with sexual partners. They may be with best friends. And we have done a terrible job of respecting those relationships. And I think one of the things that is sort of an interesting corollary of the same-sex marriage debate is why is it that we have a legal system that says we're going to privilege and protect and validate your adult relationship with a sexual partner. But if you are someone who is 50 years old and whose primary emotional relationship is with a, a close friend, a cousin, or a roommate, or someone, we're not going to allow you any way to protect that relationship legally and to elevate it to a status where you can say, this is the person who I want to leave my property to. This is the person who I want to trust to make uh, legal and financial for me. We, we allow family to do that and we allow sexual partners to do that. But we, our society does not respect attachment relationships that are neither familial or sexual and I think that's a fundamental uh, weakness and and something that runs counter to what we know about ourselves as a species Wow as soon as you said so uh, Ryan Hicks is the co-host on this podcast and um, been my best friend for for, for years and I've asked him to be the godfather of my of my son. I'm having a son born in a few 
weeks. And a lot of it is, is for that. Thank you. Um, and I think a lot of that's for that same reason. I mean, my, my wife is my primary attachment figure, but I mean, Ryan's easily in my top five, you know. Um, and, and why have a way of respecting that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, my sister, uh, my wonderful sister who I adore, uh, she, uh, two best friends, one, one is a gay man who's unattached, and one is a heterosexual woman who's also unattached. And her gay male friend, who's had serious relationships before, but uh, none of them ever panned out, and he finally at some point decided to change his will to make uh, my sister and this other friend, the other unattached, his primary beneficiaries. And he was like, well, unless I do the paperwork to acknowledge the fact that you, the two of you who I've known for 30 years and who really I trust more than anyone else to make decisions for me, unless I do a lot of extra effort to legally provide a foundation for that, no one else will. And we all went together and I was, you know, they needed a witness, so I went there and I witnessed it. and. It was a beautiful thing, and it made me so aware of the, of the weaknesses in our social system. That for him, he's like, you know what? I've, I've you know, I had, I've had a number of satisfying sexual and romantic relationships, but none of them right now are as important to me as as the two of you. And I want to make sure that those that that relationship is protected. And I don't, you know, if something happens to me tomorrow. Um, and I don't go through this legal step, then it would go to my mother or it would go to my my father, and I don't trust them to make those decisions for me, but I do trust you. And I think that in our society, we really fail to respect the power of these emotional attachments that sometimes involve sexuality and sometimes don't. Yeah. And, and we give this message that if you're someone like my sister's friend who is has a successful career and a fulfilling life and whose most important emotional relationships are not with a long-term sexual partner, that that's a failure. That unless you manage to bind up your emotional attachment and your sexual satisfaction in the same person, that's a failure. But that's a completely Western construction. It's a contemporary Western construction and there's nothing about dividing up sexual satisfaction from emotional attachment that makes you a failure. And in, in most human societies, it, they didn't expect that. We, you know, the whole everyone talks about ancient Greece and men having, you know, these same-sex relationships. I think the the most important thing about ancient Greece to realize is that they divided up marriage from emotional attachment, that they did not expect that the person that you married and that you reproduced with was supposed to be your best friend. That's a very novel thing. And we, and there are some ther theorists who have said that that's one of the reasons why we have such a high divorce rate, because we expect your marriage partner to be the be-all, end-all of your entire emotional life. They're not just the person that you're co-parenting with, and they're not just someone you're sexually attracted to. They're your best friend. 
They're your first phone call. They are everything. It. I don't. I'm like the standards that that person needs to meet to just like stay in a relationship are freakishly high. And in other societies, they don't expect that one person meets all of your emotional needs. And I think our contemporary society disrespects friendship, disrespects some of these other ties, provides no way to legally protect those relationships. And I think that's a real problem. I think that, that you know, one of the things that my research really led me to realize is that sex and love are different systems. Sometimes they delightfully intersect. And I'm privileged to be in a marriage in which they do delightfully intersect. But sometimes they don't. And when they don't, and when a person's sexual partners are not their primary emotional relationships, we shouldn't judge them or be like, oh, well, you've got some issues. Or, you know, you're obviously not very good. At really that is not true. We need to find a way to allow people to find their own path. And sometimes for some individuals, like my sister's friend, their primary emotional relationships may not be their sexual partners. And we ought to seek ways to validate that and to and to send people the message that really if if we believe in autonomy, what we want is for people to figure out the relationship configuration that works best for them. For some individuals, it will be putting the sexual eggs and the, you know, intimacy eggs, emotional intimacy eggs in the same basket. For others, it may not. But we ought to, we ought to find a way as a society to respect either of those choices. And right now, I don't think we do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to go back for a second and dig into something that you said earlier to make sure that I have a really clear understanding. Um, so, is there a difference between um, attachment relationships that involve sexuality and those that don't? Or is the only difference that, you know, one involves sexuality and, and one doesn't? Or um... You know what? You have asked a question that still haunts me. I, this, is, this is why I'm enjoying this conversation because I... I don't know the answer to that question. I have tried to figure it out, and I don't think we know. Um, and I think it's, I think it's a fundamental kind of human nature kind of question, because I think we can all acknowledge that there's something different about familial attachments than sexual attachments. So when I think about my own life and I think about my primary attachment figures. I think about my, my wife, Judy, and I think about my sister. And they're probably the top two attachment figures in my life. One of those relationships is a sexual relationship. One of them is fundamentally not. I don't know uh, whether from an emotional level and from like a level of of psychobiology like we know a lot about how attachment functions psychobiology it reduces our stress that even looking at the at the photograph of an attachment figure can reduce your brain's response to threat so there are these 
biological levels in which these things function. Um, and what I don't know is whether that is augmented by the sexual tie. Like, so, uh, is your response to threat in the brain or your, your fight-or-flight response um, does an attachment that involves a sexual tie operate differently in your body in terms of that that basic safety function is that different i don't know and i don't know of any study that's actually looked at that um i do know that you know one of the key features of attachment is proximity seeking this desire for physical contact and proximity and I know that although I love my sister and I love talking to her, my need for physical contact with her, even outside, and not sexual contact, just literally presence, like physical presence, mm -hmm. is not intense as my need for the physical presence of my wife. Now, is that because of our sexual relationship? I don't know. I think that these are some of the questions that we actually don't have answers to. And I think they're fascinating questions. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that um, I have no idea. And I don't even know how we would begin to look into that. You know, I've, I've heard and read lots of stuff that talks about how, you know, basically um, sexual, uh, uh, sexual relationships co-opt, you know, familiar attachment structures and that's why they're so yeah. similar yeah. but why do we add in sexuality at all I, I don't like, I don't I don't know I think that's a great question and and I you know if, if I had to have a dream study I would love to do a study where I could I could um, compare because I, I know especially and I've obviously been uh, I've also been sensitized to this by watching um, a lot of relatives age and watching them form primary attachments to roommates, to friends, to family members, you know, that are non-sexual. But, you know, if your husband or wife has died and you develop a primary attachment to a friend, and so I'm like, wow, I'd really love to compare those relationships to long-standing marital ties that sometimes stop involving sexual activity. I know plenty of people who say, you know, oh, I'm now 70. Sex is not the thing that's going on between me and my husband or wife. There's like, you know, there's something else going on. Um, so I, I, I would love to compare some of these types of relationships where there's a, that's still intense day-to-day -day proximity bond you know, you are in one another's space. You're smelling one another. You are literally, you know, you're you're uh, touching one another. And sometimes that is a sexual relationship, and sometimes it's not. And I don't think we have the data to really know what is or is not different. Maybe it's that sex is for younger people is the only. A context in which you have that kind of physical proximity to another person, right? Uh, we have a lot of roommate relationships. Maybe we're in high school and college, 
And then when you're an adult past your 30s, you know, you don't really live with people anymore unless they are lovers. And so maybe some of it has to do with that, the daily kind of being in one another's smell and touch and lives that you get with cohabitation. So maybe it's not sex. Maybe it's cohabitation, you know, and... So there, there are studies where you could try to disentangle these things, but right now those studies haven't been done, but I, I find it fascinating. Yeah, I think that's a great way to even look at it. I've, I've heard um, a few things about um, sexuality and the lifespan, and even how, especially for, for women, um, because... Um, well, I think it was an. I think it was Helen Fisher's book, The Anatomy of Love, wow. when she talks about you know post childbearing years, um, people's priorities change, especially for women. And I, and and I don't think that we have enough research on what happens as we age, which then of course will you know really illuminate like why we do what we do now. You know, it it could be that sexuality in a sense is, you know, mostly for. Um, you know, those who were in the child-rearing years, you know, physically. I think that's absolutely, and I don't want to discount, you know, sexuality among older people. I know that. Right, of course. So I totally want to give my props to any, like, really sexually active older people, but um, I, I think you're absolutely right that we don't have a very good lifespan perspective on some of these things, and a part of that is, you know, most of the psychological research is biased toward younger people. Who are most studies done on? College age and young adult people. And when any study is done on anyone over the age of 50, it's like a study of aging. You know, and the truth is that we have pretty long lifespans. And it, I don't think it's really valid to, be, to, to kind of base a whole psychology of attachment and love and desire that's based on people between the ages of 20 and 35, which is basically where it's at right now. And if we really want to understand the lifespan trajectory of these things, we need to focus on the whole lifespan. I mean, one of the things that, that has interested in me it, when, I've, when I've done these follow-up interviews with some of the women that I started studying, you know, back 20 years ago, is, you know, because there's always certain standard questions that I ask them, like, oh, have there been any changes in your sexual attractions? And one of the things that really kind of cracked me up um, is that once women started having children, when I would be like, oh, have there been any changes in your sexual attraction? Someone would be like, sexual attraction? Are you kidding me? Like, I would be happy to have any sexual attractions at all right now but I've got two children under the age of two I can't even take a shower like sexual attraction like WTF <laughs> and, that, and the thing is that then when the, the kids when they're like oh now my sexuality is, is like awakening again like we need a lifespan perspective that assumes that there are these ebbs and yeah. That that are lifespan experiences. That there are parts of your life where sexuality is more front and center. Parts of your life where attachment is more front and center, and that none of those changes 
is permanent or necessarily predictive of what you're going to experience 10 years later. Right. So what you're saying is that we're fluid in more than one way. Like, we're just <laughs> so fluid. That's absolutely true, and I think that's something that I'm not as aware of before. And how <coughs> I'm more aware of is that, well, this goes beyond same sex or other sex. It really is a developmental issue, and I think that that's something that for a, a lot of long-term couples is a real issue. I think, a, you know, when you talk to a lot of long-standing couples, they'll say there were periods in their relationship where sex was front and center and periods where it faded to the background and then it came back and then it went away. And if you took any of those periods in isolation and use that as the basis for the decision about the healthfulness of the relationship, you'd be wrong, right? You, it's the whole trajectory that matters. And I think probably, and, and I'm not a clinician, so this is one of those things where I'm just like, you know, I don't know, but my hunch is that a better predictor of the health of the couple is not where they are sexually and romantically at one moment, but how they adapt to these lifespan fluctuations in their own attachment and erotic relationship. How do you weather the, the ebb and flow of emotional uh, prioritization, sexual desire? How do you as a couple uh, make it through these fluctuations and find a way to stay connected where one person might not be exactly where the other person is, but they're like, okay, they're, you know, they're going through something. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, as long as we keep listening, we'll kind of, you know, you, you make it through the up and down and you, you reach the same commitment of, of, a shared pathway. It's not an identical pathway, but it's a shared pathway. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about sexual fluidity? I don't think most people, definitely I don't think most of my students know what that term means, and then talk a little bit about the research that you've done um, on how that, you know, erotic relationships change over the, over the lifetime. So, uh, I define sexual fluidity as a capacity for change and erotic attraction based on relationships and circumstances. And the sort of the way I stumbled upon it in my own search was that a lot of the women that I followed over time, you know, I, I would always ask them about, you know, what degree are you attracted to the same sex versus the opposite sex. And, you know, the, the sort of narrative we get about sexual orientation that should be pretty much stable. If you're like a total lesbian, you should be like 100% lesbian the rest of your life. If you're a bisexual, you're like, you know, you know, most, you know, like 60% attracted to women, 40% attracted to men, that should be stable. What I found instead was that over time, there was a lot of fluctuation in the relative attraction to women and men, often very influenced by who women happen to be involved with that if you were a bisexual woman who ended up 
developing a really strong relationship with the man and married him. You know, some of the women were like, well, yeah, technically I'm bisexual, but I fell in love with this guy, so 100% of my attractions are to him. So, I'm like, I, I'm not even aware of being attracted to women. And then over time, when I would revisit these women, they'd be like, oh, I broke up with that guy. And now I feel like I'm only interested in women. So there'd be these huge fluctuations that really showed to me capacity for all of our sexual attractions to be a lot more variable than we have thought in the past. And, and it's not equally variable for all individuals. I found that some women in my study showed more change than others. So I think everyone's degree of fluidity is their own individual thing. Some folks are very stable. Some folks are not. Uh, and I always use my sister as an example of this. She knows about all my research. And she's, and she's like, wow. I've, I'm as open-minded as I can, but I simply cannot muster up <laughs> an attraction to a woman. I'm like, that's okay. That's okay, honey. I love you. I love you. I know that you support my work, you know, but you are just a pretty rigid heterosexual, and I love you for that, right? So there are stable and fluid heterosexuals. There are stable and fluid lesbians. There are stable and fluid bisexuals. There are people who are more prone to change and, and people who are less prone to change. But I think the capacity for change is something that we have not done a great job of studying and validating. I think in the past, when people experienced changes in their pattern of sexual attraction, standard response by the LGBT community in particular was, well, you must have been repressed. You must not have known yourself very well. And so it was like, we can only validate your current attractions if we invalidate your path attractions. Mm. Yeah. And that is a really just like empowering thing to do for anyone. And I think now I think there's more awareness of this capacity for change and the fact that this is just a part of our human condition. Um, yeah. But I think the, the, it can, for individuals who are experiencing it in their own lives, it can be terrifying. It can be threatening to their other relationships. And I think that clinically is a huge issue. That it just be personally um, terrifying. Yeah, I think, I think that we've done a poor job in this, in this country. Um, with constant invalidation and drawing lines. I mean, I feel like I've known several people who feel like they have to put themselves into one box um, and also like scream against the other box, you know, um, which which I don't think is, is healthy. You know, I, I don't think that any group should be built on the negation of another group. And I think that that's very rampant, which is not, you know, not a good thing. I 100% agree with you. And I think it's, it's an approach that was born out of, I think, an earlier time in which identity politics was really the way that social change was made. It's like, um, 
you know, I have to, I have to figure out what, what box I fit into. And the, the thing that I found encouraging is, as I found that with the younger generation, that the college students that I teach, they're skeptical of all categories. And they're like, you know what, putting me in the queer box is just as oppressive as putting me in the heterosexual box. Why can't we get to a social movement that says everyone in our society should have the right to have whatever intimate relationship they're in validated? They need not call, call it by some name, but like either we're a society that respects sexual and relationship autonomy and freedom, or we're not. You know, just you wanna you wanna choose some person as your primary beneficiary. Our society shouldn't care whether that's a woman, a man, a sexual partner, or a non-sexual partner. Everyone should be allowed to choose certain people as their core. And why do we need to categorize it? And I frankly find that a much more uh, liberating and exciting kind of social justice platform that why why is it that we expect people to leave your estate to our sexual partners why can't it be my sister why can't it be your best friend why can't it be the godfather or godmother to your child why can't we all just choose who are the most important people to us and who cares what it's called Ryan, you look like you're thinking pretty hard. Over yeah, 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 yeah. I uh, well, part of part of the problem that I'm I'm having is you just keep answering all of the questions that you bring up for me. Uh, so, one of the things I'm curious about is you mentioned that some people have more fluidity versus it kind of happens on a spectrum of fluid and rigid and people fall in different places. Um, do you have any thoughts on where that comes from? Maybe what leads to those things? It is why I'm loving this whole interview because you guys are asking like all of the questions that keep me up at night. You're like, <laughs> these are, like that has been the thing that I've been really sort of obsessed with and trying to understand uh, in my most recent work, like, what is it that makes some individuals more fluid than not? And I have, I've investigated a number of things, and so far, I've hit a dead end on every hunch that I've had. So I looked at personality traits, like, you know, the, the standard personality traits are neuroticism, agreeableness, conscientiousness, like, openness to experience, and I'm like, openness to experience. That seems like that would be it, right? Nope, nope. When I look at the, the, the individuals in my study who have been most fluid, are they more open to experience? No. They don't, they don't appear to be different on any of the personality dimensions that I um, Is it like, like something in their background? Uh, does that have to do with how early you began questioning your sexuality? Nope. Uh, anything in your sexual history? How many sexual partners you've had? Nope. 
Um, is something about personality or attachment style? Anything? Nope. I I so I every I keep hitting a brick wall on this, and and I I I'm I think it's a like so such a fascinating question, but so far I don't know why. So so I'm just as confused as you are, and just as frustrated because. Because I, I find it so interesting. Like, what is it that makes some individuals, you know, like in my own study, some women who ended up literally having a sexual relationship with their best female friend, and other individuals who were like, I had a best female friend who was my roommate, but I can't imagine having a sexual relationship with her. So, like, what is it? I, I don't know. But I love that question, and I think it's a great question. Wow. Um, Sorry to disappoint you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, you're, no, you're it's, supposed it's, to have the answers, right? Like, yeah. No, I'm, I'm just, I think I'd be more disappointed if you were just like, yep, here's all the answers. Uh, like, oh, I, I should have figured that. There's so much you still need to learn. Yeah, uh, and also I used to think that women were much more fluid than men. When I wrote my book, Sexual Fluidity, in two thousand eight, I was like, "Oh yeah, women are way more fluid than men." Then I started collecting data on men. I'm like, "Okay, I, I think I might have been wrong." <laughs> and everyone now is like, "Well, Diamond says that sexual fluidity is more common in women than men," and I'm like, "Ah, Diamond doesn't quite think that." Wow. <laughs> Because I have found that if you simply, I think the reason we thought women were more men about the types of Hello? Can you, you are breaking up. Oh, you're breaking up. Can you hear me now? Yeah, there we go. Um, I think we didn't historically ask gay and heterosexual men about experiences that would reveal fluidity. So when I, I did a study here in Salt Lake, and I, uh, and I with gay men, bisexual men, heterosexual men, and I asked them about, you know, their sexual behavior over the past year, how often they fantasized about female and sexual partners over the past year, how often they developed crushes or fell in love with women and men over the past year, and I found no gender differences at all. Gay men were sometimes masturbating to fantasies about women. Gay men were developing crushes on women. Heterosexual men were having sexual fantasies while masturbating about men. So I think that the issue is that we actually haven't been asking men <coughs> the questions that would reveal what their entire attachment relationships and erotic lives within life. And I'm now, I, I, my hunch is that women may be more fluid than men, but that might be a thing. It might be because we give women permission to be bisexual. Mm. Then the, the stigma against bisexuality uh, in both straight culture and gay culture is way negative men than it is for women and that may be 
Oh no, your audio's cutting out again. Alright, I pulled it out and I stuck it back in. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So again, I think that I'm not sure how different men and women really are. It may be a cultural thing, and that's another, for me, it's like, those are my two big research questions going forward. It's what accounts for individual differences in fluidity, and how different are women and men? Maybe they're not as different as men. I think um, one of the things that struck me when I first came across your work was just some of the numbers. Like, I think, and I mean, you know this way better than I do, but if I remember correctly, it was like, you know, like one to three percent of people were um, actually only um, stuck in their sexuality, right? Whereas like 30% or something was like, you know, fluid. And I was like, that's just a lot more well, than, we, than we talk about. Depends on how you define fluid, but if you look at some of the nationally representative data, individuals with attractions to both sexes outnumber individuals who are exclusively same-sex attracted by such a huge degree that it's hilarious. It's like, uh, basically, if you look at the population, and, and this is not just in the United States, I've also looked at similar data in every other like industrialized nation that collects data on these things. If you look at just folks that have any same-sex attractions, uh, uh, among women, 95% of those individuals have attractions to both sexes. And only 5% of them are exclusively same-sex. Among men, 80% of same-sex attracted men are attracted to both sexes. And 20% are exclusively attracted to same sex. So a capacity for fluctuation between same-sex and other-sex attractions is the norm for same-sex attractions, not the exception. They spent, they spent like 30 years thinking that exclusive gays and lesbians were the norm, and that bisexually attracted individuals didn't exist, or they were confused, or they were transitioning, or whatever. We got it. Exactly. It's only now that we're realizing that folks have a capacity to shift between same sex and other sex attractions. They're norm, not the exception. Yeah. Yet they are the population. Yeah. Man, so we're running up against our time. Um, and I always have a, a question that I that I, I think I, I stole from Ryan. Um, if we were to read, you know, one or two books, you know, who who do you think that we should read? Obviously, your own book. Great question. Um, and it's also unfair because, like, I don't have. Oh, you know what? I know exactly what I said. Um, one of the books that I think changed my life because it challenged my notion of what was natural for 
female and male primates and the species in general was a book by Meredith Small called Female Choices. And actually, she ended up becoming a science journalist. Like, she was an anthropologist, and then she went into science journalism, and she's an amazing writer, captivating writer. And her book focuses on how, if you actually track what female and male primates do, this whole notion of males being sexually focused and females being reticent, not that sexual, is completely contradicted by the data if you actually look at what female and male primates do. And that females are as horny and as promiscuous as any male primate you will find. And it just blew my mind. It's an amazing book and it's so engagingly written and it challenges a lot of your assumptions about female and male human nature in a, in a delightful and engaging way. So Meredith Small's Female Choices. Oh, awesome. I'll have to look that one up. Um, Ryan, did you have a... Um, how, how, how quickly do we need to wrap up? I don't want to open up too much of a... A Pandora's box here. Um, Ask me a question, and if I can answer it efficiently, I will. And if not, I give up. Okay. (laughs) Works for me. Um, So I, for a a stretch of time, was working at a counseling center that worked exclusively with uh, trans and non-binary people. I was curious if you've had a chance to interact with, gather any data on people who fall into those categories, or if you've only been able to talk with cisgender. That's a great question. And in fact, some of the women in my longitudinal study, which is now going on 20 years, uh, ended up transitioning. And one of the things that I found is that contrary to the narrative that you kind of hear in the media where it's like, oh, I'm a, I'm a this, a born in the body of a that. The women that I talk to have the same experience of fluidity in gender as they sexual attraction. So some of the participants in my study were like, well, you know, I was, I, I'm a, a, was born into a female body. I don't necessarily want to transition completely to a male identity I kind of see myself as on this spectrum and in fact if you look at the literature on on trans identity and trans development there's an increasing awareness that a lot of the folks who identify as transgender don't necessarily want to go from one categorical gender to the other they feel more comfortable with an identity that involves some oscillation across the spectrum, sometimes more masculine, sometimes more feminine. Um, And I think that, and that of course is very challenging to the culture because I think our culture and the sort of mainstream, you can see it with Caitlyn uh, Jenner is like, oh, I was born into a male body, but I was always deeply female. And I think our culture can sort of make sense of that. We have much more difficulty with someone who says, you know what, I don't think I'm completely male or female. 
I think I'm kind of both and neither. Our culture hears that story and freaks out. And yet that story is is increasingly common, especially among the younger generation. So I think the transsexual narrative in which you were switching from one gender to the other is, you know, in some ways the most familiar trans narrative, but that is not the predominant narrative. And I think that as we come to appreciate fluidity and sexual attraction, we are also coming to appreciate fluidity and gender. And that in some ways is way more challenging to the culture way more challenging because I think we understand gender to be like a true part of ourself and the idea that that can be fluid I think is scary to many individuals and yet some of the youngest generation of trans folks have been so brave in saying I don't know if I will ever have a single gender and that is terrifying to the culture and challenging but that's where we're going and I and I find it to be exciting and and, and the other sort of next step in our research on this topic do you, do you have any numbers about um, that internationally I don't because you know what you know we're lucky that national surveys even ask about sexual trafficking they have only just begun to ask about gender identity. So I think the data collection on that question is about 10 years behind our data collection on sexual attraction. But I think you're absolutely right. It would be great if we had some better data on that, but right now we don't. So I have to ask this question because it is bugging the fire out of me, and I have you on the line. Um, so you were talking about you know, how with same-sex attracted individuals, um, like 80 to 90 percent um, experience some sort of fluidity, right? What about in um, opposite sex, I mean, opposite uh, attracted individuals? You know, that that's, I think, a great question because what we're finding is the single largest group of same-sex attracted individuals in the United States and other countries is individuals identify themselves as mostly but not <laughs> you broke out I'm like, I'm like on the edge of my seat and then I can't hear you <laughs> hello yes can you hear me yes yes okay yes. <laughs> the largest group of same sex attractive folks are folks who consider themselves mostly but not completely heterosexual mm. And and you, you, you hear you get this in newspapers and magazines like heterosexual, mostly straight, whatever. And it's like I think, you know, uh, in the past we have said that these folks are oh, they're just like open minded, liberal, college age folks missing other people. You've really denigrated it. But there's some great research this doesn't appear to be a legitimate category. You know, in the same way that you can be someone who's a lesbian, who's a little bit attracted to men, you can be a straight 
person who's a little bit of a, attracted to the same sex. And I actually, Rich Seven Looms just uh, just published a book called Mostly Straight, which is about mostly heterosexual men. And Jane Ward, okay, so here are other books for him. Jane Ward just published a book called Not Gay about men who have same-sex relationships with other men that don't identify as gay. So I think we're realizing that we've been spending all this time focusing on fluidity within the sort of queer spectrum. But among heterosexuals, there's a hell of a lot of, a lot of fluidity as well among both men and women. And there's now sort of more visibility about it among both men and women. And again, I think the and I, I always love to assign some of this, these chapters. You got to say that again. Uh, what, what, when I assign some of the sports to my students, I say to them, are these closeted gays? Are they confused? What's going on? And my students are like, I don't know. I'm confused. I'm terrified. I think it's really challenging, but I think that um, there is more to in the head than we have. Well, Lisa Diamond, uh, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this immensely. I know, I know Ryan has. Um, yeah. And I can only say thank you a thousand times. And yeah, I, I'm just speechless. I'm kind of in awe. It was so, so good. Really good questions. Like your questions were like the $6 million questions. And that makes it fun for me. And I have, you know, like, real, like, your, the questions were like, wow, I freaking don't know the answer because that's actually the right question to ask. All right. Thanks both of you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks. Man. Dude. I'm going to hang this up in, in the recording, then call you right back, all right? All right. Hold on just a sec, because I need to... Uh, or actually, yeah, hang it up and call me back, but then I'm going to go start my laundry real quick. <laughs>